Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you guys serving us this morning. If you would, please take your Bibles and open with me to Mark chapter 16. As I explained on Friday, I'll explain again. You're wondering why we were in Mark chapter 1 and now we're in chapter 16. Well, I've been preaching through the week. You just weren't here, so I got through it all. (laughs) Thought we... I thought it would be helpful for us as we are in the Gospel of Mark, just beginning the Gospel of Mark, uh, just a little bit into it, be helpful for us to take a look at the end. We are, of course, familiar with the story of Christ's crucifixion and with his resurrection as well, but I thought it would be helpful for us as we spend some time now in Mark. We're not scheduled to be here to Mark 16 until May or June of next year, so you'll forget everything I said then. But I thought it'd be helpful for us to spend some time looking at the end of Mark's gospel and having that lens through which to look at the entire thing as we walk through and really walk with Jesus and figure out what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, what it is to follow Jesus. And so this morning, I want us to look at uh, this last eight verses of Mark chapter 16, which then makes you ask, well, wait a second, there are a whole bunch of other verses in Mark chapter 16. We'll deal with that a little bit more specifically when we get here next year, so stay tuned, keep coming. Uh, But for now, just you probably have, like I do, some kind of a note in your Bible that tells you, like the ESV does, for verses 9 to 20, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. Uh, I, along with maybe not along with, maybe following after, the really, really smart people who have gone to school for years and years, who have a lot of letters after their names, who say that this portion of Mark, verses 9 to 20, is probably not in the original text, probably came because uh, someone who was copying various copies of the Gospel of Mark felt a little bit uncomfortable with how it ends in verse 8, but as we'll see, I think it's exactly what Mark intended as the Holy Spirit himself inspired these words. And so if you can read through those verses, verses 9 to 20, and even as you read through them, you'll discover that they read a whole lot differently than the rest of the gospel does. And they really, as you compare them to the other accounts of Christ's resurrection, they really seem to take those accounts from Matthew and Luke and John and blend them together and add a few additional things about snakes and sorts And so they really seem to be what happened, really seems that what happened was a copyist was uncomfortable with that ending and so decided to sort of tell the rest of the story. There's nothing in there that's untrue by any means, but some of our earliest, uh, as I said, the earliest manuscripts and the best manuscripts that we have don't have verses 9 to 20. And in addition to that, the church fathers uh, largely recognized that the Gospel of Mark ended with verse 8, and they do acknowledge these longer endings. There's actually a shorter ending as well, uh, but they say that those are not original to Mark's writing. That does not lead us to doubt anything about our Bibles, but it actually encourages us in the, get nerdy for a second, science of textual criticism. Yes, Christians actually value science. Faith and fact are friends. They go hand in hand. And so the science of textual criticism teaches us that we 
have an absolute trustworthy document and we can recognize when things are good, but probably not in the inspired text. And so, more on that next year when we get here. But the Gospel of Mark really ends in verse 8, and I want us to take a look at this end of the Gospel of Mark, and I want us to think about the question that I think Mark leaves hanging over our heads. What will you do now? For the purpose of context, I want to start reading in chapter 15, verse 40, and then read through chapter 16, verse 8. So if you would please follow along as I read. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn now to the pinnacle of our worship, to your word, we pray for your help. We ask that you would grant us understanding and insight into the deep truths of your word, life-giving truths. We ask, O Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that the reality of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection would be quite apparent to us. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who are very familiar with this, those of us who think about this concept every day, we pray that it would never get old to us, but that it would always remain the greatest miracle that you have ever done to crucify your Son, Father, to raise Him from the grave, and in His name give life to all who believe in Him. We pray that that very life would be given today. 
And we pray that we would enjoy that life to its fullest. Knowing that that life is eternal, it will never end. Even as our bodies here waste away, we have the hope of heaven and the hope of glory. We have the words of Jesus himself that he will be with us even to the end of the age. We know, Lord, this age will end one day, but there will be a far better age to come. An age where bully nations will no longer invade and bomb other nations. An age where we will never have to worry about addictions. An age where we will never have to worry about financial transactions. An age where we will never have to worry about sin. But we will enjoy your presence as you light up heaven with your very glory. We long for that day, Lord. Plant it deeply in our hearts so that we might walk faithfully with you through this life with all its difficulties. We praise you. We exalt you. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How can you know that anything from the past actually happened? You ever thought about that? How can you know that anything that happened yesterday actually happened if you weren't there to see it? How can you know that anything that happened 10 years ago actually happened if you weren't there to see it? And how can you know that something that happened almost 2,000 years ago actually happened if you weren't there to see it? The answer is because you believe eyewitness testimony. Whether it be eyewitness testimony from yesterday, something that you were not there to see, but you believe those who told you, or it be eyewitness testimony from 10 years ago, 100 years ago, as your own family's history gets passed down from line to line, or it be something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago, as it was written down by eyewitnesses, lived in verification of it, as people gave their very lives, something that you would not do if it was a sham and a lie, and then passed down from generation to generation and now is recorded in a book that we call the Bible. Why is Mark so preoccupied with naming names and reiterating the reality of Jesus' death his entombment, and the very fact that although no one actually saw his body resuscitate, it was not there in the tomb where they knew it was there dead just a few days before. Why is he so preoccupied with that? Because Mark is giving us verifiable eyewitness testimony that what you have heard about Jesus is 100% true. He was crucified for your sins, he was put in a tomb, and he got up out of it three days later. We'll discover as we work our way through the gospel of Mark, it's not really Mark's prerogative to name a whole lot of names, that is until he gets to the end. 
Now you imagine Mark wrote this a long time ago. And as he wrote this, no doubt at least some of these people would have still been alive. So that if you would have gotten your, co- your hands on a copy of the Gospel of Mark, or you heard it read perhaps somewhere, or a friend told you about it, they would have said names like Mary Magdalene, or Mary the mother of James and Joseph, or Salome, or Joseph of Arimathea. And they would have said to you, if you don't believe me, just go ask them. And you might have said, well, how do I know I can believe them? How do I know they're telling the truth? This is a good question to ask, isn't it? But I think a question could be posed in return. Why, if they were telling a lie, would they willingly and joyfully die for that lie? Why would they see their loved ones die for that lie if it was indeed a lie? There's a lot of crazy people in the world, right? None here, of course, of course. There's a lot of crazy people in the world with a lot of crazy stories. Every once in a while, perhaps one might die for that story, but is it really a viable explanation? Is it really a viable denial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to say that, yeah, they just made it all up? Would they lose their heads for a fable? Would they allow or really endure one of the favorite practices of the Roman Empire to take Christians, to strap onto Christians the dead hides of animals, put them into the Colosseum, and then let wild dogs and lions and tigers loose to devour them to death? Would they really endure that if the whole thing was just made up? And so I don't know how you come here this morning. You come perhaps believing, perhaps you come as a skeptic. But I would invite you, wherever you are in that journey, however you come this morning, I would invite you to listen to the words of God. Let him speak. Just listen for a few moments. As we look then at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Matthew 16, 1 to 8, we see a couple of surprises here. In verses 1 to 7, I want us to see a surprising encounter. And then in verse 8, I want us to see a surprising ending. And even as we look at that surprising ending, we will see some great encouragement for us as we live our Christian lives day in and day out. So first of all, a surprising encounter in verses 1 to 7. We pick back up with the story of these three women. Three women that as we read back in chapter 15 verse 40 were there watching the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from a distance. Two of the women, according to chapter 15, verse 47, were there, probably at a distance again, watching Joseph of Arimathea put the body of Jesus in his family's tomb and then roll the stone in front of it. They saw where the body was placed, which was how they knew where to go on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. So we pick it up there in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, the Sabbath is Saturday, 
So after Saturday comes Sunday. On Sunday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So it's a sort of typical mourning phase for these women, Jewish women, who of course didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians, their neighbors did, but rather they anointed dead bodies. They put them in the tomb, they wrapped them up, and they waited. They waited for the flesh to decay off the bones. They waited until there was nothing but bone left. And then once there was nothing but bone left, the tomb would be opened, the bones would be collected, be put into an ossuary or a little box where the bones were put in. Typically then they were put underneath that tomb because the reality is you had to make room because more people were going to die and going to need that tomb. And so we know from other accounts of the Gospels that Jesus' body had been anointed by Nicodemus, but these women were grieving. And as we learned back in chapter 15, they were women who had followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry all the way throughout. And not only had they followed him, but Mark is careful to tell us they had ministered to him. They served him. They perhaps were the ones who made sure that Jesus had food when it was time to eat and drink when it was time to drink. Had a place to stay every once in a while when he needed it. They met his needs because they knew who he was, though they didn't know completely who he was. And so as the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb and Mary and the Marys saw it laid and saw the stone rolled back in front of it so that no robbers would come in and steal anything and no animals would come in and eat anything. They come back to that very place where they knew the body of Jesus was laying because they saw it with their eyes. And in what they thought was their final act of service, their final act of ministry to Jesus, they brought spices. They were going to make sure that they paid respect to the one that they had followed for three years. And so they're on their way. And verse 2 tells us it was very early on the first day of the week. Other gospel accounts tell us that it was still dark. There's no contradiction there. When it's dawn... Some of us call it dark. Some of us call it light. Some will say, well, it's a little bit light out. Others will say, well, it's still dark. It's just a matter of perspective, isn't it? We know from other gospel accounts that Mary Magdalene got there first, perhaps even before Mary and Salome, and maybe she went there and took them back. But the piecing together of the gospel accounts is not the point of reading the gospels. Now, of course, It's not wrong to do that. And it's actually really helpful. We can fill in the gaps a little bit. But when we read our Bibles, we want to be faithful to the author's intent. Mark wrote Mark for a reason. Mark wrote Mark for a specific reason in a specific way, which was, of course, superintended by the Holy Spirit himself. God wants us to learn something by the way that Mark wrote Mark. And so they went very early on the first day of the week. When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. See Mark repeating himself. He's, he's making it crystal clear what the whole point is here. He doesn't want you to, re, to, to miss the very fact that they went there not joyful. 
not expecting to find an empty tomb. They went there sorrowful to pay homage to the one that they followed as their Lord. Verse 3 says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They had brought their spices that they had bought. They were going to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. But the thing that was most heavy on their minds, Mark tells us, is that they weren't quite sure how they were going to get into the tomb to actually use the spices they had bought. Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They knew they couldn't do it themselves. You imagine a tomb large enough to fit a human body in, but then this was a tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. So it was a tomb that was a little bit larger than us common folk would have had. It was a tomb, we'll see in just a minute here, that was big enough to not only have a place to lay the body, but also have a place for the angel to sit next to. So how large do you think of a stone it would have taken to cover the entrance to that? Quite large. Large enough that three women couldn't move it. And yet they weren't deterred by that. We know from other gospel accounts as well that the men were not there because they were scared. John tells us that they were locked in a room. No one locked them in but themselves for fear of the Jews. But these women were so overwhelmed with their love for Jesus that even in his death, even though it might cost them their own lives, they were going to honor the body of their Lord. And so they're wondering, who's going to roll away the stone? But they don't let that stop them. A little problem never stopped them. And verse 4 says, and looking up, which may imply that as they were going to the tomb, their heads were hung low. You perhaps most likely have been to the funeral of a loved one. You don't walk in there with your head hung high. You know, of course, if they were a Christian, that they're in a far greater place, that their suffering has ended. You know that there's a sense of hope that you have because the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ has risen. But the reality is it's still hard. And so the women have their heads down and they look up and they see that the stone had been rolled back. And Mark makes sure that we completely understand that it was very large, that it wasn't a, a pebble wouldn't have been an easy job to roll this stone back. And the way that Mark tells the story, and of course when we put the pieces of the other gospel accounts together, we understand that it was God himself who rolled the stone back. As Les read to us earlier from Matthew's account, a great earthquake happened and an angel appeared sitting on the stone. It's interesting, it doesn't tell you that the angel rolled the stone away, does it? Or even that the earthquake rolled the stone away. The stone is just rolled away. Why? Because God rolled the stone away. And yet, it's also interesting that we don't read any accounts of the stone being rolled away and Jesus walking out. Because the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. He was already out. The stone was rolled away so that the witnesses could get in to see that he was gone. 
just like he said he would be. And so they're no doubt amazed and they're shocked and they're surprised. And verse 5 says, And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. We can put the pieces together and understand even from other gospel accounts as we know that there was an angel sitting on the stone and there was an angel inside the tomb, two angels there, though Mark just tells us about one of them. And Matthew tells us about one of them. There were two angels there. And so we know that this wasn't just a young man, but this was an angel in the appearance of a young man, dressed in white to symbolize the purity that he has before the living God. And of course, if you went into a tomb that was closed, you saw with your own eyes it was closed and it housed a body. You went into it and there's no body anymore. And instead there's a young man sitting in a white robe next to where the body was laid and he is just sitting there waiting for you, you would probably be alarmed too. And so they're alarmed. They see this man sitting there, but the man has a message for them. The word angel, by the way, actually literally means messenger. That's what angels are. They're God's messengers. Verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. The angel knew why they had come there. They knew why they had come there. Because they sought Jesus, a man from a place, a little town called Nazareth. A man who was truly man in every way, yet truly God in every way. A man who had skin and teeth and hair, who ate, who drank, who laughed, probably told some jokes now and then, and a man who really did die on a Roman cross. Even as it's verified and The previous account that we read as we read the end of chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea wants to go and take the body down and pay proper homage to the body, and Pilate's shocked that Jesus was dead already. It normally took a long time to die on the cross. Pilate was shocked that he was dead, and so Pilate wasn't quite sure. He was a little bit skeptical, so he sends someone to check it out and make sure that he really was dead. And in that, then we have three witnesses that confirm that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was dead. And he takes the body and he wraps it up and he puts it in a tomb. And then not only do we have Joseph knowing where the tomb was, but we have the Marys knowing where the tomb was. Mark is telling you that this is eyewitness, verifiable evidence. He was there. But now Mark is telling you that he is not there anymore. And the angel simply says, he has risen. He is not here. Which I'm sure did not occur to them to say, but you just want to say, well, no, duh, he's not here. I I don't see him here. Clearly, he's not here. But by this time, the women were in shock, I'm sure. You know that feeling when something 
completely out of the ordinary happens and it makes you open your eyes a little bit and you kind of hear that little buzzing in your ears. You feel like all of a sudden like you're in a dream right now. They were alarmed. And he just says to him, he's not here. He's risen. Now technically the verb he has risen is in the passive voice. It could function in the active voice, but it also of course could function in the passive voice, which is a nerdy way of saying that it was the work of the triune God to raise him up. You could also translate this not as he has risen, but he has been raised. Indicating to us that the work of God the Trinity was involved in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know from John's gospel that Jesus said no one takes his life from him. But he alone has the authority to lay it down and to take it back up. The son was also involved in his resurrection. But so were father and spirit. So he says he's not here. And then he invites them to take a look at the place where they laid him. He says, see the place where they laid him. Look for yourselves, he's saying. You notice the emphasis on seeing, on names, on looking. It's verifiable. This, would, this testimony would hold up in a court of law. It ought to hold up in your own personal court as you decide whether or not you believe if Jesus really was who he said he was and really is alive for certain. In verse 7, the angel says, but go. Don't stay here, go. You got a job to do. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the angel gives the ladies a mission. Don't stick around here. Pick your jaw back up. Go, tell the disciples, and oh, by the way, tell Peter also that he's risen and that he's gone before you to Galilee just like he told you he was going to do. I don't think that the angel meant to rebuke them so much here. It is corrective, of course. But when the angel says, just as he told you, I don't know that the angel was wagging his finger at them. I don't think he was saying to them, you, you fools, don't you know anything? I think the angel was communicating the grace of God to them. In chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's instructing them He's prophesying indeed that what happened, even the fear and the the wonder and the seeming doubt of the women, Jesus said it was going to happen. So there in chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, it says, and Jesus said to them, to the disciples, you will all fall away. (laughs) That's not so encouraging. Unless, of course, it happens. 
And notice what Jesus continues to say to them. He says, you will all fall away, for it is written. (laughs) You will fall away because your falling away must fulfill the scriptures. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But verse 28 says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus tells them, listen, you're going to fall away. And after this, of course, Peter stands up and says, I would never do that, Lord. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And Peter, in his arrogance, thinks, no way. I'm too tough for that, Jesus. I'm too strong. I'm too able. Jesus, don't you know who I am? Yeah, yeah, he did. He knew exactly who he was. And you know what? Jesus knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly who you are. He knows that your life, just like the early disciples' lives, will sometimes involve falling away. He knows that you will do things that you don't intend to do, you don't want to do, but somehow you just find yourself in the mess. He knows that when the pressure's on, when the crowd is gathered, you too will be tempted to say, you know what, maybe I'm just going to, I should just tone the whole Jesus thing down a little bit. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to offend anyone which we would laugh at and we would say, oh, I don't care if I offend anyone. Oh, really, Peter? You sure about that? The gospel of Jesus Christ over and over again smashes our pride. And it's not just at the moment of conversion, but it's every moment of every day. Because what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, abide in me, is true for the Christian all the time. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Not some things. Certainly not most things, but no thing, nothing. We need to temper our arrogance with reality. Lord, sometimes I do blow it. Sometimes I am tempted to not say anything or not say the thing I know I should say. And sometimes I'm tempted to say the thing that I don't really agree with, but it would be awkward if I made it clear that I didn't agree. So here we have the grace of Jesus Christ even before his death saying, listen, you're going to fall away, but... I'm going to rise from the grave and I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to meet you in Galilee, which implies, of course, they're going to get it together and they're going to meet Jesus in Galilee. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not for people who have it together. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for people who realize they do not have it all together. Christianity is a a religion, a faith that says you don't have it all together. 
but Jesus does. And when you put your trust in him, you are now in him. His perfect obedience by faith gets transferred to your account. Even as you continue to walk in imperfect obedience, the pleasure of the Father that rests on the Son rests on you in the Son. And so I think the angel was reminding them of the grace of Jesus Christ. That although we might be tempted to give people three strikes and they're out, and there might be necessary situations where you have to break relationships so that you don't continually get hurt, but that's not what we're talking about here. Although we're tempted to say to people who wrong us, who perhaps turn their back on us, who don't believe us, although we're tempted to say to them, you know what, we're done. I spent my whole life carrying you, dealing with all your junk. We're done. The gospel of Jesus Christ assures you, Christian, that Jesus will never say that to you. Never. And of course, we should emulate that type of love, shouldn't we? But I would just challenge you to raise your hand if you've ever done that perfectly. Not a hand in here is raised because we're not perfect. We're sinners. We fail. We're fearful. We're cowards. But Jesus has risen. The body is no longer where they laid it. And by faith in the Son, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ now resides in you. And so the ladies have a surprising encounter. And then verse 8 teaches us about a surprising ending. How do they respond? Well, we know from other gospel accounts that they got it together. But how does Mark want us to think about their response? Well, he gives us multiple words to describe their response, and you'll see that none of them are good. And they, number one, went out, which, of course, you would say, well, of course they went out. But a further description of their going out says that they fled from the tomb. The word fled in its meaning, has the sense of fleeing to seek safety. They were scared. They weren't running to do what the angel said. They were running because they were scared. Just like the men who didn't even have the guts to go to the tomb, who had already locked themselves in a room. Now the ladies are scared too. And he says they fled from the tomb for fear, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. You know what it is to tremble. Some of us were trembling a little bit earlier this morning as we sat in the 30-some degree weather. Shaking a little bit, perhaps. But many of us have lived long enough in this fallen world to know what it is to tremble from fear. To be so impacted by an event 
that it literally causes you to shake in fear. And then he uses another word to describe their response, astonishment. The word astonishment carries the idea of being in a condition that leaves you beside yourself. They were hysterical, in other words. They were literally shaking, and they were hysterical. They were outside of their minds at this point. They were so scared. Probably they were in shock. Had there been a a medical professional there, they probably would have diagnosed them with that reality. We just need to give them some time to calm down a little bit. They're going to be okay. And, And we know, as I mentioned from other gospel accounts, they were okay. They got it together eventually. But Mark wants us to know their initial response was one of fear. Not only were they trembling and, had, and, and were astonished, but he makes it clear that trembling and astonishment had seized them. Literally, it, it had a hold of them. They were controlled now, not by their mental faculties, but by their emotional response to what they had just witnessed. And in response to that, to that shock, to that Emotional response, Mark tells us that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Likely, they couldn't even get the words out. They were afraid, he says. And then, there's a period. It just ends. Which you can see why someone would say, we can't have it ending this way. With the women who at least had enough courage, more so than the men, to actually go to the tomb. But then those courageous women ran away like cowards. So what do we make of this ending then? Well, there's a a very technical term throughout the Gospel of Mark called the Markin Sandwich. Very technical, right? Literally, that's what all the smart people call it. The Markin Sandwich. Markin because it's Mark. Sandwich, now you're hungry and I've lost you completely. Sandwich because, yeah, you're not hungry. Most of us aren't hungry, yeah. Sandwich because this, these eight verses are like the bun on the sandwich. Which implies, of course, there's another part of the sandwich, isn't there? Why does Mark specifically mention these very same three women immediately following the confession of the centurion in chapter 15, verse 39, that truly this man, Jesus, was the Son of God? Why does he then turn you away from the centurion's confession and say to you in verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And then as chapter 16 begins, he takes you right back to these women. Why does he do that? Because there's a top bun and there's some meat in the sandwich. We do well to take our Bible small bit by small bit, but we need to make sure that we take the Bible the way the author intended us to take the Bible. Make sure that you don't bite off too small of a bite 
in order to miss the sandwich that you're supposed to be focusing on. One of Mark's, and we'll see this as we move through the gospel, we haven't yet seen it, but we'll see it as we move through the gospel. One of Mark's techniques throughout his gospel is to bring up some aspect of a story, shift gears, tell you another part, or even a, 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 seemingly, uh, a seemingly different story altogether, and then to come back to that story in some particular way. In this setting, what he does is he tells you about these three women. Notice, there were more than just the three women. He just specifically names these three women, and then he brings them back up on the empty tomb. Because he's saying the focus is in the center of the sandwich. The buns help make it a sandwich, but the good stuff's in the middle. You notice that in verses 40, in verse 40, that the women were looking on from a distance. They were watching, but they were watching from a distance. Likely, Mark is signaling to us that they were afraid. They didn't want to get too close because they weren't sure what was going to happen in all the hysteria. And what did Mark just tell us as he ended the gospel in verse 8? He made crystal clear they were afraid. But what we see sandwiched in the middle here is the courage and the response of faith of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, that does not mean that men are more brave than women. We've already said the men were locked up, scared in a room, and it was only the women that went to the tomb. Mark is not trying to bash these women. In fact, he's, he, he knows that these women are women to be honored. So we pick it up then in 42 of chapter 15. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, who was he? He was a respected member of the council. The council? What council? The very council that had just handed Jesus over to be crucified by Pilate. That council. And not only was Joseph a member of that council that had just delivered the death sentence to Jesus, but he was a respected member of that council. He had a lot of clout. Joseph had sway. A respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And we know from other gospel accounts that Joseph did not give approval to the council in order to kill Jesus, but we also know he did not say, don't do it. You see, Joseph had a moment of fear himself, which is exactly why Mark tells us that he took courage. The word literally means to show boldness or resolution in the face of danger, opposition, or a problem. Sometimes it can be translated as to dare or to bring oneself to do something. So what Mark is communicating to us, we know from other gospel accounts, Joseph was a scaredy cat, but he got it together. He pulled himself together and he said, you know what, I need to do this. 
Why did he do that? Well, Luke tells us that he was secretly a disciple of Jesus, but it was secret because he feared the Jews. See, Joseph was a man marked by fear as well. And so when you're marked by fear, what do you have to do in order to do something risky? You have to take courage. Or we like to say you have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, which in all honesty, sometimes you have to do. So he pulls himself up by the bootstraps and he goes and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus. This would have been a very costly request. And notice what Mark has told us about Joseph. He's told us that he's a respected member of the council. We know that Joseph was a rich man. Why is Mark telling us that Joseph had a position, a well-respected position, within the leadership of Jerusalem, of, of all of Israel. Why is he telling us that? Because he's telling us that Joseph, in taking courage, put it all on the line in order to get the body of Jesus. And so what Mark is saying here is the very same thing he says throughout the gospel of Mark. If you want to follow Jesus, it will cost you. And yet Joseph did it. Because that's how Jesus' disciples respond, isn't it? Even when it costs us, even when we blow it in fear, the grace of God extends to us. And we have a moment where we just decide, you know what? Jesus is worth it. I don't care if it costs me my position in the council. I don't care if it costs me my respect from the entire nation. I don't care if it costs me all the money that my family has ever worked to inherit. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to follow Jesus. And so literally, Joseph of Arimathea becomes the first one to fulfill Jesus' words in the Lord's Supper when he says, this is my body, take. He takes the body of Jesus and he honors him. So we see fear in verse 40. And we see fear in chapter 16, verse 8. And in the middle, we see the example of Joseph's faithfulness. Now, Mark knows that the people that he is writing to know the rest of the story. I like to imagine perhaps if someone read this and then went to Mary Magdalene's house and knocked on the door and said, hey, Mary, I just read Mark's gospel hot off the press. What's the deal with the ending? I like to think that Mary was probably like, oh, yeah, Mark, that guy. That didn't actually happen, I don't think. I just like to think of it like that. Because I think that's the sense. The readers would have known who Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome were. They would have known who they were and they would have known that fear didn't end their life. And fear, in fact, didn't define their walk with Jesus. But in fact, they were overcomers of that fear. But the reality is, dear friends, Christians deal with fear, do we not? 
I was listening to a, a recent uh, interview with some American pastors. They were interviewing some German pastors. And they were talking about, the German pastors were saying how refreshing it is for them to come to the United States because there's so many Christians here. And they were saying how few Christians, actual real Christians, are in Germany and how it's just difficult there. And they were telling stories about how as they preached a series recently on biblical sexuality, they would have members of their congregation come to them and say, hey, could you not put that on the internet? Because my boss is not going to like me going to a church that talks about a biblical view of sexuality. That happened now in Germany. You think that's not going to happen here someday? It seems like it's happening quicker and quicker. Now we can, we can mock it and laugh at it. I mean, it really is stupid in the real sense of the word. It is stupid. But sin makes you stupid, doesn't it? So rather than mock it and laugh at it, we should take courage in the face of it. Because the reality is that the disciples of Jesus Christ do face fear. But Jesus Christ gives them the grace to overcome that fear. Mark knew. Mark abandoned the Apostle Paul and his cousin Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And yet now here he is writing a gospel. Joseph of Arimathea got it together eventually, but he was afraid to tell the council that he really believed the things that Jesus was teaching. And of course, there's Peter. I would never deny you, Jesus. And he was the first one to do it. And so as Mark closes his gospel, he reminds us that life will sometimes punch you in the face. But Jesus will pick you up every time. Mark closes his gospel in the interesting way that he does because he leaves it up to you, reader, what you will do now. What will you do with the story of the man who died for the sins of the world, was verifiably dead, put into a tomb, was verifiably no longer there but alive and verifiably seen by over 500 eyewitnesses raised up into heaven. What will you do with that man is what Mark's asking you. As he closes his gospel, perhaps the words of Jesus that he had spoke back in Mark chapter 8, verse, 43, verse 34, perhaps those words is what he wants ringing in our ears. Where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus gives us a whole lot of good things, doesn't he? But Jesus promises us that if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself. You must put a cross on your back and you must walk through the entirety of your life with that cross. But how did Jesus in Matthew 28 leave his disciples? 
with the promise that he was with them for all eternity. So at the close of his gospel, Mark puts down his pen and he looks you square in the eye and he asks you, what will you do now? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess, I confess, my fears and failures, our fears and failures. We confess that we fall short every moment of every day of the glory of God. We confess that we are not worthy to follow you. We confess that we are not worthy to be forgiven. We confess that we are not worthy for the great promises that you have given to us in the future, a resurrection body, a a physical presence with you in a world that will be no longer marred by sin. We confess we're not worthy of those things. And yet, we confess in your abundant grace, you have given us those things. Because you love to give gifts to people who realize they're not worthy. It's the humble that you exalt, Lord. And so we come to you in humility. Yet we recognize our humility is still sinful. It's not the humility that it should be. But we pray, O God, that as we look to you ever and always, you would increasingly help us to be humble as we ought to be. But we pray, O God, that we would never be so wrapped up in ourselves that we would keep our eyes on ourselves and our own need for humility or even our own sinfulness. But that our sinfulness and our need for humility would cause us to look to the one who is humble himself. The one who is sinless yet paid for our sins. Grant life, Lord, to those who need it. Open our eyes to behold the beautiful, wondrous mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Time we will take up our offering, so I'd like to ask the ushers if you would please come forward for our offering. This time also serves as a continued time of reflection upon the word of God and what he has taught us this morning. I would say to you, if God himself is tugging at your heart, If it's clear to you that you need to do something with this empty tomb, if you need to talk to someone, I'm happy to talk with you. Many people here would love to talk with you. But don't ignore the call of God to salvation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your gifts to us. And thank you for the opportunity to give gifts back to you. Even saying that sounds silly, as if you needed anything from us. But we recognize, Lord, You you desire us to be cheerful givers. We give cheerfully because we recognize you are the giver. You have given us so much. And we understand that it's not about the amount that we put into the plate, but it's about the heart from which we give. So we ask, O God, that you would ever increasingly make us cheerful givers. Use these gifts for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.